0: we can make a difference
1: by putting this on you have started a chain reaction that could bring about the next apocalypse in a world overflowing
0: with movies we need a hero someone to separate the bad from the good
1: Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 113, The Mummy Returns. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to you all, whether you are a returning listener, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, I'm so grateful that you're here. And this is a really special episode because 100 episodes ago, I covered The Mummy. And it made complete sense to me for the 113th episode to cover The Mummy Returns, especially because we are in something that I've dubbed Sequel Timber. But before I talk about that, as always, a huge thank you to, ev- firstly, everyone listening, obviously. Everyone who's listened to recent episodes, the Sequel Timber episodes, they are sequels to previous episodes of the podcast. And I've recently done episodes on X-Men 2 and also Toy Story 2. And people have really valued those episodes because, as it turns out, not many podcasts that I'm aware of have covered those episodes. So I kind of feel like it's a little bit special, actually, to be talking about these sequels because they really are sequels that are worth talking about. And similarly with The Mummy Returns. So, as I said, 100 episodes ago... I covered The Mummy. It was with a guest, the brilliant Jason from Wulong Talks, a wonderful man, such a brilliant podcaster, such a wonderful human being. And to me, The Mummy is the greatest movie ever made. That is official. And so it made complete sense to return to the franchise 100 episodes later and come back for The Mummy Returns. There are many reasons why I think The Mummy is the greatest movie ever made. I mention it a lot on social media, so if you ever follow me on Twitter especially, you will probably hear me talking about The Mummy at some point. Or see, not hear, see me talking about The Mummy at some point. But obviously, if you do want more on The Mummy, then go and listen to 100 episodes ago, episode 13 of this podcast. It is an earlier episode of the podcast. It probably doesn't sound as good as this episode does because, you know, when you're just starting out, independent podcasts don't sound so brilliant. But I absolutely would recommend that you listen to that. I'm just going to jump straight into The Mummy Returns because there's a lot to talk about. I mean, let's be honest, it's what you think I'm going to be talking about is what I'm going to be talking about. But I want to start with the trailer for The Mummy Returns because The Mummy Returns was very ambitious, arguably perhaps a little too ambitious, which retreads some of the same story beats as the first and it has a child along for the ride too. So here's the trailer.
0: A force more powerful than any the world has ever known is about to be unleashed by the two people who should know better. Guys again? Universal Pictures presents Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz, John Hanna, Arnold Vosloo, Odette Fair, Patricia Velasquez. Introducing Freddie Both and The Rock as the Scorpion King.
1: Another monster, another quest for the world. The Scorpion King, a legendary warrior who sold his soul to Anubis, was erased from record in the ancient kingdom. His existence was lost to the sands preserved only in mythology. But there is truth to the myth. In the desert of Armcher, in a golden pyramid, sleeps the Scorpion King, and whomsoever kills him may command the demonic and undefeatable army of Anubis. Seven years after the cursed high priest Imhotep, was resurrected and defeated by Rick O'Connell and Evelyn and Jonathan Carnahan. Rick and Evie are now married and raising their son, Alex. On the Egyptian New Year, Evie begins having dreams about Ancient Egypt, which lead her straight to the bracelet of Anubis. Meanwhile, Imhotep is resurrected once again by a mysterious woman named Mila, the reincarnation of Imhotep's love and Nuxunamun. Together, Imhotep and Mila have one goal, defeat the Scorpion King and use his army to destroy mankind. Mila's henchmen come to the O'Connell home to look for the bracelet of Anubis, but Ardeth Bay appears. Ardeth explains the legend, the mythos, and the problem. Now it becomes a race against time to get to arm's share. Let's go through the cast. Wonderful cast in this movie. Some of my favourite people ever. Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell. Rachel Weiss as Evelyn Carnahan O'Connell, also Nefertiri. John Hannah as Jonathan Carnahan. Arnold Vosloo as Imhotep. Oded Fair as Ardith Bay, Patricia Velasquez as Milenaïs and Anaxuna Moon, Freddie Both as Alex O'Connell, Alan Armstrong as Baltus Hafez, The Rock as Matthias of Akkad, a.k.a. The Scorpion King, Adewale Akinoye and Bajie as Lucknar and Sean Parks as Izzy Buttons. And The Mummy Returns was written and directed by Stephen Summers. As I said 100 episodes ago, I talked about how The Mummy came to be, its roots in the universal horror canon, as well as the resurgence of pulp cinema in the 90s. There's a reason I think it's the greatest movie ever made, that's because it is, and when it was released in May 1999, it returned $416 million on a budget of $80 million. Director of the first movie, Stephen Summers, obviously returned as writer and director for this, Couldn't really bask in the enjoyment of his pulpy action adventure horror comedy romance movie, hitting number one at the US box office opening week. The movie opened on a Friday night, and at 6am Saturday morning, Summers got a call from Ronald Mayer, president of Universal Studios at the time, simply saying, We want another. Luckily for Universal, Summers had been brewing an idea for a sequel for months to bring back the same characters but increase the scope as well as the special effects. The Mummy included the first fully computer-generated character to have full human anatomy, courtesy of industrial light and magic. Summers wanted to outdo himself for the sequel, and I'm going to obviously come back to the VFX later, but the intention was there to be bigger and to utilise the advances in technology in the two years between the first movie and the second. Summers got to work on the script, and the principal cast had an agreement with him that they wouldn't return unless they felt it was worth returning for. Obviously something that Rachel Weiss would invoke her right to not return for the second sequel for that very reason. With all the principal cast confirmed to return, everything was set to be bigger, including the physicality required for the major roles. Brendan Fraser did most of his own stunt work in the first movie, but in this one Rachel Weisz's Evie would be just as capable, down to her being the reincarnation of the Pharaoh's daughter Nefertiri, both Vice and returning co-star Patricia Velazquez, wearing considerably more as Mila Nais than Anuk Sun Moon, trained in ancient Japanese martial arts and boxing for seven to eight hours a day for three months into filming, and also did the majority of their own stunts. Patricia Velazquez, a trained dancer, did her own splits and jumps. She ended up in hospital in London, actually, after a cyst burst during filming, Brendan Fraser would tear a spinal disc, crack a rib, and injure his knees during production of this movie, injuries that would plague him for years afterwards. And if The Mummy Returns is famous for anything, or perhaps more infamous for anything, it's for starting the cinematic career of one Dwayne Johnson, credited in this as simply The Rock. He would come back for the Scorpion King prequel, and as a professional wrestler, he was obviously used to tough conditions, and also to acting the part. He had little formal acting experience at the time, but Stephen Summers was impressed with his natural charm and confidence, stating that he thought Johnson would go far as an actor. And let's be honest, he wasn't wrong. Dwayne Johnson is now one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, earning the title of highest-paid actor in 2019 and 2020. Arguably, without The Mummy Returns, he would have none of that. I'm kind of joking. Filming for The Mummy Returns started in Morocco in May 2000, in the small desert town of Erfoud, the same place The Mummy had been filmed two years prior. Erfoud had spectacular sand dunes and is situated on the edge of the Sahara Desert. I don't know if I'm going to call him The Rock or Dwayne Johnson, it'll probably be a bit of both to be honest, but I'll call him The Rock because that's how he's credited in the movie. Had to get up at 2am every morning for three hours of makeup for his initial prelude scenes as the Scorpion King and I am, promise, going to come to his CGI version in a little bit. A specially constructed desert airfield was built at uh, Ouarzazate, a one-time French Foreign Legion garrison town, which is interesting considering the French Foreign Legion were essentially characters in the first movie. Filming in Morocco was tough, obviously, with extreme heat. The production then moved to London, a completely different weather setup, obviously. Shepperton Studios was used for the internal pyramid, palace and temple scenes. On-location shooting took place on Tower Bridge in front of the British Museum, although what they call the British Museum is actually University College London, as well as a rather anachronistic chase scene past London landmarks in a red double-decker bus, which had been made to look like a genuine 1930s bus. The London shoot was a stark comparison weather-wise because, let's be honest, UK, Morocco, bit of a difference, London was chilly and rainy. Shooting also took place at Bryants Lane Quarry in Bedfordshire for the Hamannaptra dig site, and meant towers in Buckinghamshire. Originally they planned to shoot everything in London, despite the movie clearly taking place in a desert, but obviously shooting in the desert has its own issues. The physical challenges of the shoot meant that they brought back a lot of the production crew of The Mummy to help with the gargantuan task of making a very effects-heavy sequel that still retained the charm of the original. So now I feel like I've reached a point in this episode where I could actually start to talk about the visual effects And I would like to caveat this with the fact that I still think that The Mummy, the first movie, holds up when it comes to visual effects, mostly. I think the important thing to realise is that The Mummy is 22 years old now. The Mummy Returns is 20 this year, and 20-plus-year-old CGI is likely not going to hold up unless it's used sparingly. I'm thinking something like Jurassic Park as a great example for very sparingly used CGI, A problem with movies like The Mummy, and specifically The Mummy Returns, which goes out of its way to use more CGI because it's got a bigger budget. So, of course, they're going to use that budget. And again, I'm going to come to time and budget and stuff a bit later because that actually adversely affected The Mummy Returns. But if you are going to do something that's bigger and better and bolder, and more brash, and all of those brilliant things, you are probably going to use more CGI, and it is probably going to date a lot more. So yeah, that is a caveat. So let's talk about the effects for The Mummy Returns, because if you're a regular listener to this podcast, I talk about special effects a lot, and I talk about special effects a lot because I'm a huge fan of practical effects. It was something The Mummy used. They tended to use more practical effects and CGI in The Mummy was used relatively sparingly. But when it was used, it was the best that they could get at the time. Like I say, it was Industrial Light and Magic. Industrial Light and Magic are literally at the forefront of digital effects. So I feel like a lot of people listening to this are listening to this thinking, well, what is she going to say about 20-year-old CGI? Well, okay. I'm going to start with another caveat. And I'm going to say I am not going to shoot down The Mummy Returns. And there's a really good reason why I am not going to shoot down The Mummy Returns. Because I feel like The Mummy Returns has a really bad reputation that's come about in recent years of being the worst visual effects of all time. Or one of the worst visual effects of all time. And I feel like that is really, really unfair for reasons that I'm going to come to. But I want to talk about the visual effects... the Mummy Returns in a really positive way, to sort of say this is the amount of work they put into this movie, because I don't think people realise how much work went into this movie, so I'm going to tell you how much work went into the Mummy Returns. So, when it came to the titular returning character, obviously they decided that they wanted to facelift Imhotep, they wanted to try and make him look, in inverted commas, better than he did before, but otherwise Industrial Magic reused all of Imhotep's 3D model animation rigs, muscle and organ simulations and displacement maps from the first movie. Uh, I talked about that a little bit in the previous episode. Imhotep himself would have a bigger role in this movie and be able to do more as well, such as Crawl on the Ceiling which is something that we never saw him do in the previous movie. Also, CGI would be Imhotep's soldiers. They would chase the bus around London. We also have Anubis' army. They are dog-headed soldiers, of which there would be an entire army's worth. I'm going to come to them too. Pygmy mummies. I'm also going to come to them. And the Scorpion King himself. But I want to leave him to last. Because I feel like if you're here for anything, you're going to be here for the Scorpion King. Because he is the one effect that people pick on this movie the most for. So I'm going to leave him till last. Oh, and there's also the Oasis at Armchair as well, which I'll also come to. But let's talk about the crew who worked on this movie. So there were 100 people in Industrial Light & Magic who worked on 359 visual effects shots in this movie. And that doesn't sound like much compared to today's movies. However, this was double the original estimate that they had. In this movie, the CGI Imhotep would be able to interact with the humans around him in more complex ways, such as he would be able to caress Mila's hair. Because of the increased screen time, Imhotep was seen to be more of a character in this movie by the crew, rather than just a monster. Motion capture performance was still done by Arnold Vosloo, using a 16-camera Vicon 8 optical system, which fed into Kedara's Filmbox software for their real-time display. Motion Capture lead Doug Griffin stated at the time that this was a brand new system. No one had done it before. They were capturing Vosloo as a feature performer rather than an animator in a motion capture suit. The motion capture team actually moved their whole system to England so Arnold Vosloo could be filmed at live action in the shot. The shot would then be filmed again without him and then he would wear a motion capture suit to repeat his original live action performance. And animation director Daniel Jeanette... And the visual effects supervisor John Burton could watch the CG mummy on screen in real time. Motion capture was also used for the army of Anubis, bipedal nine foot tall dog-headed warriors, an army of which sacks the city of Thebes and later battles an army of Magi. These were conventionally motion captured by one or two stunt people at a time to build a library of motion that the animators could use to form an army. Lead technical animator Chris Mitchell created custom software that transformed data from human leg movements into three jointed dog's legs to create the epic Anubis army versus Magi battle scene. Horsemen were filmed in the Moroccan desert attacking blue-costumed stuntmen with nine-foot poles on their backs. The blue stuntmen were then removed from the frames and the digital Anubis warriors were inserted in their place where they borrowed technology from the Imhotep model to create multiple different Anubis models with an assortment of helmets, weapons, necklaces, bracelets, and other adornments to try to make each Anubis warrior look unique. Warriors in the foreground were hand animated, and those in the background were animated in cycles using alias Wavefront's Maya. Each warrior was assigned a side of random attribute, which is fascinating, by the way. Each warrior had, like I say, a different necklace or a different headpiece, even down to whether the Anubis warrior was left or right handed was completely picked at random. And these tiny little things, you wouldn't notice in the movie, but this is the level of technical detail that this VFX crew went into, even assigning right- or left-handed warriors. Some scenes had several thousand warriors, which were multiplied by copying a group from one area into another. For the final scenes, another 64,000 warriors storming the sand dunes. Remarkably, all 64,000 Anubis warriors were rendered, even leaving little footprints in the ground with the simple characters at the back and the more detailed characters at the front. And despite the slightly dubious CGI, like I say, it's 20 years old, of the Anubis warriors, look at the fight scene in this movie where you've got the Anubis warriors fighting against the Magi. It actually works. It holds up. It feels like a real battle. And that's because... (laughs) They are actually fighting something. I will be completely honest, The Mummy Returns is not a movie that I've seen as often as The Mummy. And I was pretty taken aback by, A, how much I enjoyed this movie, considering how much I love The Mummy. And B, when it's done well, it's done really, really well. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit perturbed by the fact that the internet has crowned this as the worst VFX And that's the title that this movie has, because it really doesn't deserve it. Watch the scene with the Anubis Warriors versus the Magi. It's good. I mean, don't look at it too closely, obviously, but it is good. Imhotep's soldier mummies return. They are a mix of practical and CG. And despite there being four mummies chasing that London bus, the protagonists only kill three. That is a genuine fact. The little pygmy mummies were treated almost in a similar way to the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, where basically you only see something picking off the group in the undergrowth one by one, which is actually very effective. Each pygmy mummy was animated manually, meaning that the actors that they were killing at the time just had to act like small cannibalistic mummies were trying to kill them, and the pygmy mummy was animated around them. And in scenes of multiple pygmy mummies, each one was assigned a particle applied to keyframe cycles, in the novelisation of The Mummy Returns, the pygmies were caught by the pharaohs and brought back to Thebes as court jesters. And that's why they're annoyed, shall we say. And they don't like humans. Which is a really interesting little thing that the movie doesn't go into, but the novelisation does. Are we ready to talk about the Scorpion King yet? No, not just yet. Because we're forgetting the lost souls in the pits of hell. They are CG 2 the Mummy's Face in the Water, that's also CG. They used the Fluid Dramatic Engine used on the perfect storm. They used a ray tracing pass created with Avid's Soft Image Mental Ray and then fed it through Render Man that gave the tropical water translucency and refraction. Imhotep's face was created from a model animated in Soft Image that deformed the wave with tools similar to those that deformed the water with 2D wave patterns. Render Man, a nice little link back to Pixar from the last episode on Toy Story 2 there, even Izzy's dirigible was mostly CG, made out of an old fishing boat, a jet engine and a balloon. Are we ready to talk about the Scorpion King yet? Well, no. Wait a sec, because we need to talk about the CG Oasis at Arm's Share to make the plants and trees spring up and spread out to create an oasis in the desert. They wrote plugins for Render Man to dynamically generate models of the plants and animate their growth. First, they planted particles in Maya. Then, using RenderMan's recurve primitives to specify edges of fern surfaces and repatches to curl control vertices that are later unfurled as the fern opens, the plugin grew plants procedurally in the particle locations. To simulate biological diversity, they used a random number generator to shift hue, saturation and value and to arbitrarily assign textures. To simulate wind, they shifted each plant as it grew according to wind strength and direction in its area. And so basically what I'm saying is they put a lot of thought into this movie. It may not work 20 years later. It may look a little bit dated, but they put genuine thought into the VFX of this movie. Okay, so now we can talk about The Scorpion King. Because I feel like I've built this up because this is why you're here. You're here for me to talk to you about the Scorpion King. Half human, half scorpion, all rock. The Scorpion King is, like I say, probably what this movie is best known for. And to their credit, they do a great job on the animation of the scorpion part. He has eight legs, he has three tails, four claws, each moving independently and coherently. The human part of the Scorpion King was clearly and obviously more difficult. Because while the character is played by The Rock in the prologue of the movie and introduced at the end in shadows, which is a great way to introduce a character, especially someone like this, introduce them in shadows. Once the camera catches him, it zooms in on him and it stays on him. There are eleven close-up shots of the Scorpion King, and obviously they were aiming for a photorealistic look. They scanned Dwayne Johnson's face and created a three D model using a combination of painted textures and, again, Render Man to emulate skin. Shadows were removed from the scan of his face so that the images were neutral and could be lit within the actual scenes. And arguably, the lighting is quite good as well. Displacement shaders were created to give a realistic skin texture, lighting shaders to make it look translucent. It was the facial animation, though, that was the hardest task and the most taxing for this particular production, even now. Look at recent movies that have tried to get facial animation right. It's really hard. Rogue One is a great example. I covered that on episode 46. Rogue One is not an old movie by any stretch of the imagination, but look at Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia. The faces still are not quite right. There's still an uncanny valley look to them. In 2019, the YouTube channel Corridor Crew gave themselves one day to fix the quote worst VFX shot ever. They took face shots of the rock from the entire Scorpion King movie and essentially created a deep fake version to superimpose onto the Scorpion King's face in this movie, as well as improving the lighting, background and textures. And admittedly, they do improve the shot vastly. I will pop a link to that video in the show notes so you can see it. But again, it's very difficult to compare CGI nowadays, especially when we're talking deepfake technology, to CGI from 20 years ago. It's obviously going to look better now. But considering they only took a day to do it, they do a really good job. And it does improve it vastly. It's been well documented since... That budget and time constraints led to the VFX still being worked on just before the release date. So while Stephen Somers had big plans for this movie, and clearly he did, the team working on the effects just didn't have either the time or the technological advances to successfully achieve the goals that this movie set out to achieve. It's actually kind of sad that The Mummy Returns is primarily known for the one shot of The Scorpion King. Because look at The Mummy Returns as a whole... It's actually not a terrible movie. It has some really interesting set pieces. has some really nice little character arcs. I mean, except Jonathan. That man literally never changes. I feel like I wanted to do The Mummy Returns because I feel like this movie gets a short shift. It's unfair to judge this movie on 20-year-old CGI, especially 20-year-old CGI that they didn't have time to finish. I think it's very clear that you can look at some of the shots in this movie and think maybe that could have been better if they'd had a bit more time to work on it and time is something that I've talked about in previous episodes even the previous episode on Toy Story 2 I talked about the fact that Disney refused to budge the release date of Toy Story 2 I mean obviously it's a fascinating story I'm not going to repeat what I said in that episode because the history of Toy Story 2 is so fascinating but they had a problem with Toy Story 2 and Disney refused to budge the release date. So they basically worked their bums off to get Toy Story 2 done. This feels like a very similar situation to that because they purposely released The Mummy Returns two years, pretty much to the day that The Mummy came out. And I don't think that they were willing to move that release date. I'm talking about Universal here. So I feel like this was the best that they could do. And if you look... Uh, the details of this movie and the details that these people went to it is actually a lot better than i think people give it credit for and you know this is not a perfect movie the mummy is perfect by the way the mummy returns like most movies it plays fast and loose with anachronisms evie's clothing is really 1930s appropriate although nor is her being an explorer I suppose. And at least the Benbridge scholars have finally realised her worth. I am a huge fan of Evie as a character. I've spoken at length about how inspiring I think that character is. And I feel like in this movie, I think she's just as inspiring. And the relationship between her and Rick is just really sweet and lovely. The London bus chase passes several key London locations that are nowhere near each other and ends up on Tower Bridge, which actually was closed to allow for filming. They were allowed to close it for 20 minutes at a time. But the resulting traffic jam after the first time brought threats of arrest from Scotland Yard. And so they reduced the closing time to 10 minutes to get these scenes shot. Additionally, the fact it takes them like a day to travel from London to Egypt in the 1930s. I wasn't alive in the 1930s, but I don't think that's true. Like most sequels, it adds new things to the characters that have only just come to pass. Such as Rick being a Magi and Evie being the reincarnation of the Pharaoh's daughter Nefertiri with a personal vendetta against an axe and a moon. And like most sequels, it adds a child to the mix. I'm not against children. Children are very cool. But children in action-adventure movies are mostly not very cool. The movie even skims over its timeline, because the first movie was set in 1926. So the first movie starts out in 1923, then it fast-forwards three years later, 1926. This one is set in 1933, so seven years after the first movie seven years after Rick and Evie meet. And Alex tells us that he's eight. Now, I'm not a scientist. I have a reasonably good... (laughs) I have a reasonably good understanding of human biology. And I know for a fact that you cannot have an eight-year-old child with a person that you met seven years ago. It's not possible. (laughs) But anachronisms aside, I feel like... The Mummy Returns deserves a hell of a lot more love than I think people are willing to give it, including myself, because I have a lot of love for The Mummy. And I have so much love for The Mummy (laughs) that I have always kind of, not disassociated the sequels, I disassociate Tomb of the Dragon Emperor completely, and I don't even want to talk about the Tom Cruise one. But I've always thought of The Mummy as a great standalone movie, and I've never really given The Mummy Returns much of the time of day. Other than I've watched it a few times. Watching it for this podcast and then learning everything that went into making this movie has actually made my affection for it grow quite exponentially. Now, I wouldn't say it's as good as The Mummy because, to be honest, not much is. In fact, nothing is. But I really do feel like The Mummy Returns actually does deserve a second chance from a lot of people forgetting about the VFX there's nothing we can do about bad VFX guys bad VFX is out there a lot of movies suffer from it I don't think the legacy of The Mummy Returns should be the bad VFX of the Scorpion King we need to change the narrative of this movie because this movie actually deserves more than ha 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 look at the Scorpion King it looks rubbish because it's actually not that bad, really, in the grand scheme of things. I've seen worse. Does it really matter if 20-year-old CGI doesn't stand up to modern standards? No, it actually doesn't. I am going to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference, which is a part of the podcast where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And one of Rachel Voice's first Hollywood movies was Chain Reaction with Keanu. This was in 1996. They then starred together in Constantine, which is episode 26 of this podcast, and another highly, highly underrated movie, by the way. I did actually look to see if Keanu starred in anything with Brendan Fraser, and he hasn't. But hopefully, with the renaissance that's going on, I hope that Keanu and Brendan Fraser do something together, because I feel like that is the dream team right there. I want to see Brendan Fraser back. I want to see him making these excellent movies again. And I want to see him star with Keanu because I think they work really well together. One of the things that I love the most about The Mummy is actually the Jerry Goldsmith score. It's one of my favourites, actually. I find it like an epic, sweeping, romantic kind of adventure score. And I really love that. Jerry Goldsmith didn't return. Alan Silvestri composed and conducted the score for The Mummy Returns. Jerry Goldsmith declined to return to this particular movie for health reasons. Jerry Goldsmith would actually pass away several years later from cancer. The credits also include a version of the song Forever May Not Be Long Enough by The Rock Band Live. Now, I completely forgot that this song was in the credits. And so as I finished watching the movie and this rock song comes on in the credits, I immediately felt a little bit jarred by it because... This is a movie set in the 30s, and then to have an early 2000s rock song playing in the credits, I just thought it was really, really jarring. The Mummy Returns released, as I said, almost two years to the day from its predecessor, on the 4th of May, 2001, in the US, where it opened at number one. It stayed for two weeks. The second week, it faced competition from the wonderful A Night's Tale, which opened at number two, that is episode 44 of this podcast, and that movie is a stone-cold joy, by the way. The third week, it was dethroned by other fellow episode, Shrek, that's episode 79, and slight spoiler alert, sequel Tember obviously carries on for the rest of September, and it may include a sequel to Shrek. I mean, <laughs> there's not many sequels to Shrek, but it It may include a sequel to Shrek. The Mummy Returns was a huge hit, like the first one. It was actually a slightly bigger hit than the first one. It was made on a budget of $98 million and it grossed $433 million worldwide. It broke records at the time for the highest Friday and Saturday box office and had the second highest opening weekend of all time at $70.1 million behind the Lost World Jurassic Park. Critically, The Mummy Returns was given mixed reviews, but I want to take the opportunity to highlight the travesty and also highlight the issue with Rotten Tomatoes and any site that aggregates reviews here in that The Mummy Returns has a 47% rating on the site which personally I think is slightly harsh but okay The Mummy has a 61% rating which is an absolute abomination sure it's technically fresh but 61% and yes I am biased on this but Rotten Tomatoes has got it wrong in this case, and to be honest, even in the case of The Mummy Returns. As I said, The Mummy Returns—it's not as good as The Mummy, but I definitely think it's worth more than a forty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And where is the hundred percent for The Mummy? This is—it's times like this where I think maybe I should have become a Rotten Tomatoes-approved critic, and then I could literally just five stars all the movies that I'm really biased about. Because yeah, The Mummy is one of those, and I'll. always completely honest with everyone listening that I am incredibly biased about The Mummy. Usually I only mention major awards when I talk about movies. However I do think it's worth noting that The Mummy Returns did get nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Special Effects because these were quite state of the art in 2001 technically even The Scorpion King the Rock also won a Teen Choice Movie Villain Award as well as a Stinkers Bad Movie Award for Worst Supporting Actor. Ah, uh, you win some, you lose some, Dwayne. But who's laughing now, Mr. Highest high-standing Actor? Am I right? There was a sequel to this movie, The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, from 2008. Brendan Fraser returned. Rachel Weisz did not. I have only seen it once. I do not care to watch it again.
0: <laughs>
1: I really don't. And the great thing is, for this particular podcast if I don't want to cover something I don't have to and I can tell you I am not going to cover the mummy tomb of the dragon emperor or the 2017 abomination neither of them I am going to cover on this podcast because I don't want to sully the good name of the mummy and the decent name of the mummy returns but on a side note if this particular team I'm talking Rachel Weiss I'm talking Brendan Fraser I'm talking John Hanna if they come back together to create another Mummy movie then I am there I am first in the queue to watch The Mummy Reinvented The Mummy Reincarnated The Mummy Resurrections whatever they want to call it I'm there and even if they want to recast Alex O'Connell I guess I'd still be up for that but otherwise The Mummy Returns has no sequels as far as I'm concerned Am I being really harsh? Probably. I feel like I've been really generous (laughs) when it comes to The Mummy Returns because I genuinely do feel like we need to cut this movie some slack. But Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, nah, we don't need to cut that any slack. Uh, Right, let's look at social media thoughts. So I like to ask what people think of the movies that I cover and I like to go all over social media and I like to start with the patrons of this podcast so I'm going to start with Andy
2: and Andy says the one thing that never occurred to me while watching The Mummy Returns is that I was watching a star being born in Dwayne The Rock Johnson as a fan of his during his days as a pro wrestler I always knew that he'd have the talent and charisma to pull off Hollywood stardom and it really shows in this film and while the chemistry between Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz and John Howe is always off the charts, and keep in mind I genuinely like this movie the PlayStation 1 era effects of the Scorpion King, in his eternal form, kill this movie dead. And Andy gives us his thoughts pretty much every episode.
1: And so every episode, uh, like I do with all patrons who have podcasts, I give their podcast a little plug. So I have to give a little plug for Andy's Podcast Geek Salad. They are literally the one-stop shop for all of your geeky movie trivia music, <laughs> books, games, literally anything and everything is over on Geek Salad. They've got 200 plus episodes of excellent content. They're a wonderful group of people. So I will pop some information about Geek Salad in the show notes. We also have a patron comment from Brendan
2: who says, The mummy returns full short of its predecessor mainly by being too ambitious for its budget and tech at the time. However, while the execution of a lot of big CGI set pieces leaves something to be desired, Stephen Summers' knack for compelling adventure protagonists and exciting set pieces is still on full display. Even as the addition to the series' lore and new supporting characters threaten to topple the top a spinning plates, Summers still crafts an enjoyable ride with every actor both clearly having a fun time while also genuinely committing to the drama. It's Messier and sillier, but feels like a genuine continuation of the first film, down to Rick and Evie being allowed to have an evolving relationship rather than trying to repeat character beats or substitute new romantic interests. And having Alan Silvestri delivering the exact right kind of rousing pulp adventure score doesn't hurt either. And the final patron comment comes from Griff, who says Where The Mummy was known for having special effects way ahead of its time, The Mummy Returns goes kind of the opposite. Enjoyable film and sequel but the effects for The Scorpion King are shocking. And Griff,
1: along with his co-host Paul, host the Paul and Griff Show, obviously, who coincidentally released an episode on The Mummy just a few weeks back. So make sure you go and listen to that information on the Paul and Griff Show in the show notes. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at DW Lundberg, who said... I actually like this one better than the first Mummy. It's got such a headlong cliffhanger serial energy that it doesn't give me time to reflect on just how stupid everything is. Plus, I completely buy Vice and Fraser as a loving couple who are genuinely attracted to each other. At all underscore MFC said, The Good, Airships and Trains, Rick and Evie, Scorpion King Flashback, Immotep's Big No! The Bad, Precocious Kid, CGI Scorpion King, Immotep's Big No! Final verdict, pales in comparison to the first, but could have been much, much worse. At Shayla YY said, I love the film, but the special effects are pretty poor. I think it's just as enjoyable as the first, and I don't have a hard time looking past the effects, though. Evelyn's journey blew my mind the first time I watched At JLW Chambers said, I adore The Mummy almost just as much as you do, Em. But The Mummy Returns falls flat for me. The SFX are terrible. Alex is annoying and Jonathan goes from lovable goofball to just plain dislikable. It's much better than the other Mummy films, but nowhere near as good as the first. At Switch Envelope said, On a recent ep, we discovered this film represents the moment in the timeline when the action star Torch is passed from Frazier to Johnson. The Rock would appear in bigger roles in sequels to original films Fraser was in, The Mummy, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, and G.I. Joe. At 90s underscore all said, Well, I dug the first Mummy, but I remember this one doing nothing for me when I watched it. I must be honest, though, given I only saw it the once when it came out, I remember almost nothing about it apart from the terrible, terrible Scorpion King effects. At The Middleborn said, It's just pure pulpy adventure fun. Moving over to Instagram, at Friendly Spa Pod said, It's hard to follow the best movie ever made, but I think this movie does a pretty damn good job. It made me want there to be many more. Careful what you wish for, eh? Winky smiley. Mm, indeed. And finally, at The digressor said, I'm legitimately interested in your opinion on this. And the third one, considering the first one is your favourite movie of all time. We'll definitely be listening. I mean, I would have anyway, but this one is technically highly anticipated. Lol.
0: I hope that I haven't
1: disappointed. (laughs) I was fully expecting a lot of the comments to be based around the Scorpion King's effects. I am not surprised. But I do hope that in listening to this episode and everything that they actually went through on doing those effects, I hope that maybe people's minds have been changed. I don't know. But thank you, as always, to everyone, to the patrons and to the people on Twitter and to the people on Instagram. For providing their thoughts on The Mummy Returns. The Mummy, as I said, is my favourite movie. It's the movie I've seen the most times in my life and The Mummy Returns has always languished in the, oh if it's on TV I'll guess I'll watch it category. I've never really set out to watch it on its own merit before so honestly I've probably only seen it a few times in its entirety in the past and separating it from The Mummy is hard Because it tries to associate itself with its predecessor by recycling jokes, which is fine, you know, a lot of sequels do that. What sets The Mummy Returns apart for me is the ambition. Stephen Sommers clearly had a vision of surpassing the first movie in every way, but The Mummy worked for its simplicity, its lack of pretension and its roots in the universal horror genre that it emulated, paid homage to and enhanced. There's a reason Universal never got their dark universe off the ground, and that's because they focused on the serious and not the fun. By all accounts, The Invisible Man was great, but I've not seen it, so I can't really comment. The fact that seven years later, even if according to the film it's not, that Rick and Evie are still so in love with each other is endearing. The chemistry between Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz is still brilliant, and child acting is tough. Freddie both did a couple of TV projects after this, but otherwise retired from acting. It's really hard for child actors, and while he is a full-grown adult male now, I'm not going to knock a child actor for their performance. Arguably, the film would have been better focusing on the post-marriage adventures of Rick and Evie without the character of Alex, but he's there, and he's not going to magically disappear. And neither is the Scorpion King. But again, it's hard to be unnecessarily harsh to a 20-year-old CGI. The VFX team did the best they could, with the time they had, Calling it the worst CGI ever made belittles that hard work. It's actually a really fun movie. It just doesn't hit the high heights of the original. And it's kind of unfortunate that it never will. But I actually am going to put out a plea to anyone listening to give The Mummy Returns another shot. Now, it could be that you re-watch this movie and you say, I don't know what she's talking about. This VFX sucks. ...because it's 20 years old... ...and that's absolutely fine... ...if you have that thought... ...but... ...when you look at this movie... ...and you look at it with the knowledge... ...of what they actually tried to achieve... ...I feel like... ...as I said... ...we really should cut this movie a little bit of slack... ...yes the VFX isn't great... ...it's not going to be... ...it's 20 years old... ...but... ...let's appreciate what it does do really well... ...it builds the relationship of these characters... It includes some growth for these characters, apart from Jonathan. But it also makes me think about what this franchise could have been. There were seven years between this movie and Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. And arguably, they had a hit on their hands with this franchise. This could have been our generation's Indiana Jones. And yet, it just kind of stalled. And there has to be more stories from these characters There has to be more mummies in the world. There has to be more that these characters can do. And I really do feel like... Yes, we can say that The Mummy is a standalone movie like I have done for so many years, insisting that The Mummy is so great and just kind of ignoring the sequels. But The Mummy Returns is quite special in that at least it tried to be something more, which is hardly what you can say for Tomb of the Dragon Emperor or that Tom Cruise abomination... Because I feel like neither of them actually tried. Whereas this one does. And I really do think it deserves some kudos for that. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Mummy Returns. If you did enjoy this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can retweet or like posts on social media. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast. And if you like this episode on The Mummy Returns specifically, you might also like one of the following previous episodes of this podcast. Episode 13, 100 episodes ago, The Mummy, with special guest Jason from Wulong Talks, where we basically talk about, well, our thoughts on The Mummy, but I also go into quite a lot of history on the Universal Monsters and basically how The Mummy came to be. It is a fascinating story, especially the story about the VFX for The Mummy. A lot of which returned, ha ha ha, for this particular movie. Also recommended, episode ninety three, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that is simply because without Raiders of the Lost Ark, we would probably not have The Mummy, and without The Mummy, we would certainly not have The Mummy Returns. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a fantastic movie, literally one of the best Steven Spielberg has ever done. I personally do prefer The Mummy. <laughs> I don't know that's sacrilegious to say that, but hey. I'm a fan of The Mummy, but absolutely check out the episode on Raiders because it is a phenomenal movie with a really fascinating history. And again, both of these movies, these franchises, they are both firmly based on Pulp Cinema. And as a bit of a curveball, I thought episode 96, The Monster Squad. Now, The Monster Squad was supposed to be based on the (laughs) Universal Monsters except they didn't have the rights to the Universal Monsters. So they basically made up their own monsters. But the Monster Squad is super fun. It's very campy. It is very silly. It's aimed more at children, really. But I'm going to say it, I think it's better than the Goonies. So yeah, I feel like I'm losing you. I feel like I'm losing listeners. Because not only have I said that The Mummy Returns is decent, I've also said that I prefer the mummy to Raiders and I prefer the monster squad to the Goonies and uh, yeah I can hear you all turning off right now anyway give me feedback on my recommendations let me know what you thought and this episode as I said is the longest between sequels 100 episodes between episode 13 and episode 113 and the next episode is the shortest between episodes because the whole idea for sequel timber actually came from the movie that I covered in episode 108 and I desperately wanted to do the sequel but I couldn't fit it into August, so I thought, why not do it in September? And then I created the whole sequel timber thing, and that's basically why we're here. And so a mere six episodes after the 1979 original, episode 114 will be on Aliens. James Cameron's 1986 sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien. This year is its 35th anniversary. And it's still one of the greatest action sci-fi movies ever made. I'm so excited to be talking about Aliens. It's one of my favourite, favourite movies. And I always wanted to talk about Alien. But similarly, I was so desperate to talk about Aliens that I created Sequel Timber just to give myself an excuse to talk about Aliens. So Aliens is going to be the next episode. And I really hope that you will join me for that you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can also find me at verbaldiorama.com Patreon which is basically where people sign up to support the show. A huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. I could not do this podcast without their support. So a huge thank you to Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. If I were to say to you that I am a stranger travelling from the East seeking that which is lost, you would reply that I am a stranger travelling from the West. It is I whom you seek. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch if you want. If you want to get in touch, you can do so on social media, but you can also email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to verbaldiorama.com. And you can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. It is a website. I write for it. I do a British movie podcast of the week recommendation every week. And I also write a column all about independent podcasting, which is in the magazine. And I'm coming up to my 20th column very soon, which I'm really excited about but also quite nervous about as well because that means 20 issues of a magazine i've written in which is crazy but anyway please check out film stories and please follow film stories because it's a fabulous project and finally if the symbol in the book of Amun-Ra looks like a stalk it's always a Menefus. Bye.